All right, so we're going to jump into Nahum here. So this year has brought along with it an unending amount of bad news, and it just doesn't seem to stop. I kind of feel like 2020s uh, working on our clicker this morning. So um, maybe you feel about 2020 how you feel about this book, the book of Nahum. We just keep coming to another section on the destruction of Nineveh. It's another woe that's being pronounced over Assyria. The reality is we could have preached this book in one week, or we could have preached this book in three weeks. But I love how the Bible is able to preach to our current context in so many different ways. And at the end of my sermon last week, I, I talked about this benefit of the gospel and the fact that it is multifaceted. The gospel is multifaceted. So it's going to speak to us from so many different angles. So one of the ways that I like to think about the gospel is that it's like an ocean. You, you can dive into the ocean and you'll never swim down far enough to get to the bottom of it. You'll never swim far enough out that you'll get to the other side. You can just keep on swimming. And today, we get a reminder out of the book of Nahum regarding how our perceived strength will oftentimes lead us to hopelessness. Now, the gospel is good news. So when we hear the title of this sermon, we might wonder, where's the good news in that? The good news in this is that this drives us to Jesus. When we feel our weakness, we've got to look beyond ourselves for something that is strong. When we feel hopeless, we have to look outside of ourselves for something that will provide us hope. And we run to many different things, but all of those things eventually will disappoint us, except for Jesus. And so that's where we want to get this morning, is to Jesus. So let's read Nahum 3. We're going to start in verse 8 and read through verse 16. Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart, a sea, and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast. And all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. 
as I like to say, it kind of preaches itself, right? Pretty, pretty straightforward. Uh, not, not so much. But to believe the Bible means we believe these words do preach good news to us. It might take a little work, but they do preach good news to us. And this highlights why we centralize preaching in the way we do here at Center and Church, here at Center Church. Over and over in the Bible, we find God creating and recreating. Okay? This just happens over and over. God creates and then he recreates as well as sin destroys things. The main way, though, that he does this is through his word. He speaks. And so preaching is a way for us to listen to what God has said, to listen to his word. And the desire is that then, as God has done repeatedly throughout history, he would create faith where it does not exist. God creates out of nothing. So even in those days when we feel filled with doubt, when we feel like we have no faith, God, even in those days, can create faith. So that's my hope for us this morning, that we would hear good news and God would create faith where it does not exist in our hearts. Okay, as Nahum is pronouncing this woe, so remember last week he was pronouncing a woe at the beginning of chapter 3, and he's continuing that today. He asks this rhetorical question. He asks, are you better than Thebes? He then goes on to give us a little bit of context about this city. So Thebes was an important city in Egypt, and it had some similarities to Nineveh in and how it was situated. It had rivers running through it. It was well fortified. The idea of attacking Thebes was daunting. There was no easy way to overtake it. Furthermore, Thebes had taken steps to enter into partnerships with surrounding nations, and so they also garnered support from those around them as well. Now, as many viewed Nineveh as invincible, the same was previously thought about Thebes. And yet, this important city that seemed impossible to overtake unexpectedly fell. And so now, because Nineveh is very much like Thebes was in its own day, Nahum is challenging Nineveh in this way. Now, Knowing what humanity is like, Assyria, which is where Nineveh was, likely thought that they were better than Thebes. Because this is how humanity works, right? We think that our good actions exceed the good actions of others. We also believe that our evil actions are not as bad as those around us. This is what Thebes thought before they were unexpectedly overthrown. They thought that they could not be overtaken. This is what Nineveh thinks about themselves in Nahum's day. Now, Nahum's use of Thebes is intended to hit close, very close to home for Assyria. Because do you know who overthrew Thebes? It was Assyria. Assyria was the nation that overthrew Thebes. 
So of course they thought they were better than thieves. They proved it. They demonstrated it from a military standpoint. But now Nahum is providing this warning for Nineveh. Now, this physical example of something that happened historically is really helpful for us when we allow it to preach to us spiritually. Okay? Our tendency when hearing of the atrocities committed by the Assyrians is to immediately think that we are better than them. We didn't do what they have done. We didn't torture our enemies in the way that Assyria did that. Even for Judah, which is who Nahum is most explicitly writing to, it might be easy for them to look at Nineveh's sin against them and against other nations and then to ignore their own sin. To say, well, they're worse than us, which minimizes our guilt and our own sin. So this phrase, are you better, I think really sticks out like a sore thumb in these verses. So I was thinking about this phrase this week, and it led me to go to Luke chapter 13. In Luke 13, Jesus tells a story about a tower in Siloam. Okay, this tower uh, though there is very little that is known about it, uh, killed 18 people, okay? So this tower collapsed, and when it collapsed, it killed 18 people. Now, Jesus references this event in an attempt to push against the idea that certain people die or they suffer because their sin is worse than another person. There was a belief in Jesus' day, and this belief is pervasive in our day today as well, that we will suffer and we will die because we've upset God or because God is mad at us. In Jesus' day, the reason he's talking about this Tower of Siloam, people were thinking they were better than those people who had died when the tower fell. So Jesus says, he says, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, unless you turn from your sin, you will likewise perish. Whenever we come across uh, parts of the Bible where it talks about judgment, there's this principle we should take note of at those times, or even in our lives today, when we see someone dying, when we see someone suffering in our world today, it is a reminder that ultimate judgment is coming. It is coming for those who are not trusting in Jesus. So, so whatever the supposed judgment might look like today, it's a reminder for us, it's a warning for us that there is judgment coming. Now, it might be God's discipline for us today. It might be God's discipline for someone else today. But ultimately, there is a day coming when judgment will be poured out. And so the call for us then is to trust in Jesus, to not delay in trusting in him, to fully give ourselves over to Jesus, when we play the game of making ourselves feel superior by looking at others and seeing how we are 
better than someone else. How, however we want to measure it, when we want to put ourselves in the spot of being better than someone else, we are putting ourselves in line with the inhabitants of Nineveh. We are being like they were. We are not better than those who are suffering. We are not better than someone who has an inferior political perspective. We are not better than someone who might have less money than us. We are not better than anyone who we might view as inferior by any metric we want to impose. In fact, not only are we not better, they may be better off because they've gone through or are going through something that strips them bare and reveals to them that they are not sufficient, they are not superior, that they need help. So the call for us is to trust in Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. We do not trust in hard work. We do not trust in good deeds, nor in the fact that maybe our parents are Christian. We don't trust in spiritual disciplines or our ability to follow rules, none of those things make us better. Jesus is better. And that's it. Jesus is better. To trust in anything other than Jesus is a hopeless endeavor. To trust in anything other than Jesus will lead us to hopelessness. Now, this is hard for us to compute because so much else in life seems to be something that we can get better at if we practice. If we work hard at something, we'll get better, we'll improve. But at the end of the day, spiritually speaking, we can't make ourselves holy. We cannot make ourselves acceptable to God according to his standard. This can only happen through Jesus. And Nahum drives this reality home. As we look at verses 14 to 16, uh, it, it's as though he almost seems to mock the Assyrians in this regard. Nahum says, draw water, strengthen your forts, tread the mortar, multiply yourselves. You increased your merchants. Nahum seems to be telling them, Work hard. Draw water. Strengthen your forts. Do all that you can do so you're ready to go to battle. And he even goes to the extent to seemingly to affirm them that their work has resulted in profitable ends for their nation. When he says, you increased your merchants. But Nahum is also clear that all of this will be for naught. And for us reading this today, the spiritual implications of this are really, really important for us to grasp. If we try to make ourselves better spiritually, if we try to fight our own spiritual battles on our own, it will lead to what verse 10 says. It will lead us into exile. It will lead us into captivity. This is the whole reason that God gave Israel the Ten Commandments. 
He was demonstrating to them and for us today that as we read the Old Testament and the failure of Israel, that their efforts to obey God will not draw them closer to God, but will separate them from God. We are much better at breaking God's law than we are at keeping it. Israel over and over proved themselves unable to obey God's law. And even when they did obey God's law, it led them further away from God because they thought highly of themselves. It just created pride in their hearts. Jesus is the one who fulfilled God's law. He kept it. He fulfilled it. He did what we cannot do on our own. And in so doing, he frees us from spiritual exile, spiritual captivity. Thus, the emphasis of the Christian life, and I say this over and over because I think this is so important. The emphasis of the Christian life is not on what we do. It's on what Jesus has done for us. This is foundational to the gospel. It is not about what you do. It, it's, a, it's about what Jesus has done. And he is better. Always. In every scenario, he is better. He is the one who makes something out of nothing. And so, as we're reading these verses, they preach to us, don't be like Nineveh. Don't think that you are better than, that you can scale that mountain, that you can accomplish that thing outside of Jesus. The only way that we climb the mountain to get to God is by Jesus carrying us up that mountain. We cannot grit our way through it. We cannot white-knuckle our way to God. Jesus must carry us there. Okay, there's a couple of things in these verses that I wanted to take just a short moment to comment on uh, because these two items have drawn some controversy uh, throughout history. So I just wanted to make a couple of comments here regarding this. Verse 10 is used as a criticism of God, as an accusation of his brutality. Uh, there is this phrase here that talks about infants were dashed in pieces. So what is going on with that? There is nothing in here that suggests that God approves of this. And, and part of the argument is that, well, God sent his son to die on the cross, and that seems like divine child abuse. And so why, why is this included in the Old Testament? Um, but there is nothing here that suggests that God approves of this at all. In fact, this description of Assyria highlights their wickedness. Actually, this is... Um, this is talking about Thebes and what happened to their infants, okay? But this is what Assyria did to Thebes. So this is highlighting the wickedness of Assyria. And then 
corresponding why God is coming against them. Why this is such a huge deal for God to come against the evil being uh, pushed forth in Assyria. But this is also a warning to Judah. Because remember, Nahum is writing to Judah, to God's people. And remember, Judah's own king, Manasseh, had sacrificed his own child. God does not approve of such evil in any way. I think even this scenario that's being talked about here also demonstrates the insufficiency of the perceived military or physical strength that Egypt thought they had, Thebes thought they had. They thought, we will never be overtaken. Thebes thought they could protect their inhabitants, but their efforts... Their so-called strength could not even protect the most vulnerable amongst them. Okay, so, so this is in no way affirming this idea at all. Secondly, uh, we read in verse 13, your troops are women in your midst. Now, Upon first reading, this may sound as though Nahum is making a joke about women, that they would be unable to do something that uh, men could do. But, but this is not a joke about women at all. Now, I would contend, and I've contended this other times, and I would, will continue con- to contend this reality, that Christianity has done more for the valuing of women than any other movement throughout history. There is uh, an individual whose name is Rebecca McLaughlin. Uh, She wrote a book called Confronting Christianity. Um, I did not take this quote from that book, but from something else that she wrote. But she deals with this idea of uh, whether women are degraded in Christianity in her book, Confronting Christianity. But she writes this, The Greco-Roman world was as much as two-thirds male due to maternal deaths and childbirth and infanticide of unwanted baby girls. But historical records suggest that the early Christian movement was as much as two-thirds female. There were doubtless many reasons for this, but one was that Christianity placed a value on women that the belief systems of the first and second century did not. Women were made in the image of God, jointly called to his service and deserving of the love and sacrifice of their husbands. Christian women were allowed to marry later than was typical in Greco-Roman culture, and Christian men were called to be monogamous and faithful and to prioritize their wives' needs above their own. This was radical and Christianity was ridiculed as a religion of women. So I think that Christianity is going to wave the flag for women over and over. We see this throughout history. But what this is speaking to in these verses is it says, your troops are women in your midst. This is a criticism of Nineveh and a criticism of their leadership. Those charged with defending the city at its final hour are mothers and sisters and daughters. The criticism points out the shirking of responsibility by the men of Nineveh. Their call to lead 
their call to protect, their call to love. And I think part of the reason for this we find in verse 11. It talks about drunkenness there. I think that the, the men were too inebriated to fight. And so what we see when we step back from this is they were too focused on not just enjoying the good things in life, but overindulging in good drink, making an idol out of a good thing. And this left them drunken and unhelpful. There's this call for men then to step up to the plate and, and to love and to lead and to care for in ways that God calls us to. That we would not find ourselves, whether it's literally or figuratively, drunken and unable to fight the fights that God has for us to fight. Okay, so what, what do we do with all of this? How do these verses preach to us today and get us to believing the gospel? First point of gospel application, a desire to be good or to make ourselves better will not end well for us. So this example is given to us repeatedly in the Bible. Now, Nineveh maybe would have disagreed with this uh, assessment, but they were not better than Thebes. Assyria was not better than Egypt. Israel could not make themselves good by following the Ten Commandments. We cannot make ourselves good, right, or holy by doing enough Christian things. We read in Romans 3 this, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Aside from God's grace and him coming to rescue me, that is me. That is a description of me and a description of you as well. So if we are not righteous, we cannot make ourselves righteous. And I think this conversation is so vital for us today, where we're at culturally, in conversations about many things. But I would say, especially regarding politics, we have this tendency to assume moral high ground. Whatever our perspective is, is better. It supersedes someone else's perspective. Nineveh is a picture for us to see where this leads. When we think we are better than someone else, it will not end well. Imposing our will on others is futile. Seeking social power is not the kingdom that Jesus seeks to establish. So a Republican or a Democrat agenda will not make us better. You can fight for those things. We can fight for those things, but that's not going to get somebody where they need to get. 
in the sense of being right in God's eyes. You are not better than your enemy. We are not better than our enemy. Do you believe that? Not, don't just flush the idea. Like, do you believe? Is that how you live? Is that how you operate as you walk through your life? That, that we are on a level playing field with other people. We have to believe this reality. We are not superior to others. Now, in a, in a sense, we all want to be good. We all maybe want to be better than we are right now. Philippians 4 says this for us. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, think about these things. So we've got to consider what is true, what is honorable, what is just, what is pure, what is lovely. And the answer to that, the ultimate answer to that is Jesus. Jesus is our better than. When we understand who Jesus is, and we understand what Jesus has said about us, it cannot help but move us to a place of humility. More than ever, we need to be marked by our humility. We come underneath people to lift them up. We don't come over people to talk them down. We've got to come underneath them. Jesus has to be the focal point of our life. He gave value to women who were devalued in his day. When humanity was in the crosshairs of God's wrath, Jesus stepped in to take the shot. He lived a perfect life, which means he obeyed the law. He obeyed God's law in a way that we never can. And Jesus then offers himself as a better sacrifice for our sins. And so today, we don't hear Jesus say, do a bunch of good things to show yourself good enough. We're free from that. He beckons us to look at what real love is. What it looks like for someone to be better than. That's him. We look at him. And we learn what love is. And we rest in that. And we let him shape us by his love so that others will encounter his love through our lives. We will not change ourselves. We must be changed by Jesus and his love for us. The upside down nature of the gospel is that we can't work for our salvation. But once we understand what Jesus has done for us, we will want to work harder than ever for him. You get that? We will expend lots of energy. We will try to do all these religious rituals. We will do what we think is working hard and try to save ourselves, try to make ourselves better. 
But once we see Jesus for who he is, once we understand how and what he has forgiven us in the vastness of our sin, we will be compelled to work so much harder for him when we see him for who he is. And the implications of seeing and understanding Jesus today are huge. We no longer need to fight for being better than someone else. Senate Church, don't fight these temporary, futile fights. May we fight for the gospel. May that be the flag that we wave over and over. May that be the kingdom that we're trying to get people to. As we take residence in Jesus' kingdom, the stress and the anger that comes with defending our own kingdom can disappear. We don't need to fight for that thing. We don't need to fight against the person that's driving slow in the left lane. We can just roll on, on a Sunday drive, chill out, and not have to fight that battle against that person. Nahum's threat of exile to Nineveh was death because their whole existence was based in the pleasures that they had accumulated for themselves. To have their land, to have their civilization taken away from them was death to them. When we're trusting Jesus, if we are exiled from the things of this world, we simply become more like Jesus. We look more like him. We can trust Jesus to protect us. He is a fortress that will prevail. Social capital in being a Christian, it's going to go away. Social structures that we, we want to be in place, they will fail eventually. Military might may wane, but Jesus won't. He is our friend when we are lonely. He is our strength when we are weak. He is our honor when we are dishonored. He is our rock when everything beneath our feet seems to be crumbling away. Let Jesus be your refuge and our hope.